there should still be legal appeals and biblical appeals to them to accomplish the very purpose for which they were created. It is entirely right and good to stand before government officials to open up the Bible and say, the God of the universe is the one who puts you into positions of authority. You should recognize and acknowledge him, and you should acknowledge what you are supposed to do, which is do what is good. This is right and good and appropriate and ought to be done more often. Instead of, our, instead of our political officials always, always appealing to natural law and, and things that just seem to be right and, 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 and Republican conservatism, whatever it might be, they ought to be breaking open the Bible in their Senate chambers. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 38 through 42, and then I'm going to move us over to Romans chapter 13, so you'll need to be ready to turn there in your Bibles as well. So we'll read both of those passages this morning as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount and in the illustrations of what it means to overcome evil with good. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If, you, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And then Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, I'll read down through verse 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay your taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Please be seated. The Volstead Act, otherwise known as Prohibition, Federal Reserve Act, Federal Income Tax Laws, Obamacare, and 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. 
What do these have in common? Americans, many, find these laws oppressive. They wrestle with them. They wrestle that the government would put these kinds of restrictions or that would reserve or, or, or somehow curb liberties in the ways that particularly grate upon our desire for independence, our desire to be able to pursue our life, liberty, and happiness. And we tend to look to the government for our security, our comfort, our protection, and prosperity. And if not that much, at the very least, we expect them to give us an opportunity to pursue our interests and protect our assets. However, when the government ceases to pursue these things and instead enacts laws that impinge upon our personal rights, our property, and our time, our common response is to grow anxious, angry, and combative. However, when we realize that we are only exiles on this earth, temporary citizens of a country in which we reside, and that the ruler of our permanent country is good, gracious, just, righteous, and trustworthy, then we are able to set aside the pursuit of our rights, our comfort, and our security on this earth for the glory of God, for the salvation of others, and the eternal rewards that we will find in heaven. So what we'll see this morning as we look at Jesus's illustration of how to respond to government oppression by overcoming evil with good, we will see that the kingdom citizen is able to respond joyfully and graciously to government oppression only when he entrusts himself to the just and gracious king of his true country. I'll say that again. The kingdom citizen is able to respond joyfully and graciously to government oppression only when he entrusts himself to the just and gracious king of his true country. Now, in our text, in Matthew chapter 5, we have been working through the Pharisees' perversion of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They took the Old Testament law of societal justice, which was to restrain uh, the inappropriate penalties for crime, but also to make sure that crime was restrained by imposing proper penalties. They took that and really essentially turned it into a law of personal vengeance. It was a license, essentially, to nurse personal grudges and an incentive to pursue personal justice. And we saw that most often, or most clearly, in their pursuit of Jesus. That he, they, 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 he assaulted them. He assaulted their their understanding of the religious system, in, as he spoke against them, and they nursed this grudge even unto putting him to death. And so we find in our text that what Jesus does, as he did in each of the examples that we've seen, where, the, where there was a perversion of Old Testament truth and really of truth in general, the truth that God had set forth, he says, but I say to you, he brings the fulfillment, he brings the reality of the law, he really goes underneath to the hard attitude of what should be happening when there is injustice that is perpetrated against us. What do we do? when we truly are treated unjustly by evil people. And he says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And we discuss the fact that that means at the very least that we do not return evil for evil and that we never take our own revenge. However, it means much more than that. Not only is it the passive side of not sinning and, and not trying to extract our pound of flesh, it is also the positive side that we saw of giving water and food to our enemy of overcoming evil with good, of being at peace with all men. And then Jesus began to work through a series of illustrations that bring this to bear. Not satisfied with simply laying out the principle and then moving on, he brings it to bear in these four illustrations in ways that we have, I believe, found already to be incredibly difficult to live out. In fact, impossible for anyone who is not a kingdom citizen. And that's the entire idea. How is it possible for those of us and, and who, who our whole lives are lived for ourselves to elevate ourselves, to glorify ourselves, how is it possible to turn the other cheek when we are insulted at the deepest level? It's not possible. 
And we will not do it unless the Lord has already humbled our hearts, unless we are poor in spirit, unless we have the, the realities of kingdom living implanted upon our hearts through a generation that is represented in repentance and faith. So kingdom citizens are the only ones who can actually do this, and Jesus is bringing this to bear as he, as he gives these astounding pronouncements. So the first one we looked at was the issue of how a kingdom citizen responds to personal insult. And Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, it appears the best understanding of that is a, is a backhand across the face, that we are not to respond in evil towards that person. We are not to return certainly that evil to him, but even more so, we are to seek to be at peace with the one who has insulted us. We are to give our enemy, as it were, food and drink by remaining in the relationship and giving every opportunity for the relationship to be healed and to press on or to overcome that evil with good. The second illustration that Jesus brings is the kingdom's uh, citizen's response to legal oppression, and we looked at that last week. He says this, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, verse 40, let him have your coat also. And the response of the kingdom citizen was, give up your cloak. That is, if they're going to take your shirt, they're bringing some kind of legal case against you to take really the last thing that you have, the shirt off your back, you give them the thing that the law could not even require, which was your cloak or your outer garment, which you were supposed to be allowed to keep. Your heart attitude is such that you would say, for the kingdom of God, for the pursuit of, of people seeing who Jesus is ultimately, the reality of the gospel, I will go even further and give up my cloak. The one thing the law can't take from me, I will give it. That's the heart attitude. And we said that it doesn't mean that Christians can't defend their legal rights. It doesn't mean that they can never go to court in any fashion. It doesn't mean that they're always obligated to pay a greater legal penalty than demanded. It certainly does not mean that they should never try to address grievances between believers. We looked at all of those things. But the hard attitude of what it means to desire to show Christ to the one suing you by the joyful, graceful way you handle the lawsuit, by being willing to give up legal rights when there will be a benefit for the gospel, and really kind of fundamentally, that if you have to choose between a revengeful heart and losing everything, lose everything. A revengeful heart is far more dangerous, far more devastating than for you to lose every earthly possession that you might own. Well, now we'll move on. That's challenging enough, is it not? It's like, let's stop here. Guys, we're a a very short way through the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're going to have to put on our seatbelts. We're going to have to be ready to buckle in for the long haul because Jesus is just beginning at coming at every one of the prejudices we have, every one of the sins that we hold dear in our own hearts, every one, one of the things that we hold up kind of as our respectable sins, he's coming for them all. And now he's coming for one of our most cherished sins. And that is complaining against the government. Oh, I know you're saying that's not me. No, actually, you're not saying that. My guess is you're saying that is me. That's what I'm like. That's what I do. How can I solve that problem? Because you need to solve it. It's a problem. And Jesus comes after it in other places, and certainly the apostles come after it in other places, but this one is perhaps the most challenging, and particularly when we begin to look at the, at the cultural and historical situation, we're going to see that what Jesus says in verse 41 is absolutely revolutionary. Oh, not in the way that most people think of revolutionary, which is what? Overthrow the government. It's exactly the opposite, as we will see. Let's take a look at it. Verse 41 Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. It's only one sentence. It doesn't seem to be that big a deal. And of course, this has been very, very quickly broadened out to mean just about anything. Anytime someone wants anything of you, well, you know, give them a little bit more. It's the attitude of what? Go the extra mile. Well, that's well and good. 
But it kind of undoes the very force of this statement, which has a very specific application in mind. And certainly there can be other ways in which we apply it. But let's take a look at it. So a kingdom citizen's response to government oppression, and that is truly what is being referenced here. It isn't just any oppression. It isn't anyone asking you to do some unusual thing that you'd rather not do. Your parents asking you to sweep the floor, so you sweep it twice. It's not a bad idea. But that's not really what is going on here. So he says, and the principle is this, is to go the extra mile in government oppression. And the reason we know that he's speaking very specifically towards this, towards government oppression, is the word that is used here. The text says, and whoever forces you to go one mile. It's a very specific word. It's a military word, and it's the word used for a press gang. Someone comes, and this used to be common you know, hundreds of years ago, where they needed more people for the army or, or for the navy, and so they would come and they would, they would go on shore. If it's a, it's a Navy ship, the captain would send his officers on shore. They would find young men lurking about the wharves, doing things that young men ought not to do. They would simply grab them, right, uh, knock them out or whatever they needed to do, clap them in irons, take them to the ship, and they would spend the rest of their lives sometimes in the military service, all by court order. And that's essentially what's going on here. That's the word that is used. To force is to requisition, to take by force into a particular military service. There's only one other place in the New Testament where this is used, and it's very interesting. Matthew 27, 32. This is as Jesus is walking out of Jerusalem carrying his cross. The Roman guards, the Roman soldiers are walking along with him. And as as it turns out, Jesus is too physically weak to continue to carry the cross. So what do they do? Certainly the Roman soldiers do not say, hey, we'll take that. We'll, we'll carry that cross as it were. We'll walk. No, what do they do? As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. That's the word used here. They requisitioned him. They used this law. That is the law that says if a particular Roman soldier had some kind of burden that he needed to carry, that he could ask any Jew or really any person to carry that for him at least one mile. It appears that maybe there were other aspects of that law, or that the Roman soldiers are simply applying it a bit create, uh, creatively. It's not their burden, but it had to do with the with the the trial that had just gone on. Jesus couldn't carry it, so they find Simon just standing on the road, and they say, you carry the cross. You carry it up to Calvary instead of Jesus, and certainly we're not going to do it. So it is to press into service, one mile was simply a, a, Roman, a, a Roman unit of distance. And in this case, the demand was to carry out a legal service provided for by Roman law. This was not any demand of any person from any other person. This was a legally required response to an authorized person, that is a Roman soldier, even though this law was tremendously burdensome and oppressive. John MacArthur says, Roman law gave a soldier the right to force a civilian to carry his pack for a million, that is, a Roman mile, which was slightly shorter than our modern mile. The law, designed to relieve the soldier, not only caused great inconvenience to the civilians, but was made even more despicable by the fact that the oppressed were made to carry the equipment and weapons of their oppressors, sometimes even to battles in which they would be fighting against their own people. That is, the Romans fighting against the Jews, and he needs to get somewhere, so he requires the Jewish citizen to carry his backpack for a mile. Outside of combat, the Roman soldier was probably never more hated than when he forced someone to carry his pack. I'll bet. Can you imagine the very oppressor of your people, the one whom you hate essentially above everything else, 
And particularly in Jewish, Jewish culture at this time, in Jewish history at this time, the hated Roman oppressor would come, the very soldier who had crushed you underneath his boot, he would say, I want you to carry my stuff, the instruments of warfare that I use to put you in bondage, and you will carry it a mile for me, and you have no choice. This is legal oppression. It's not simply that he was stepping outside his bounds on some kind of vigilante action. No, he was, he was able to do this. And you can imagine what this meant to the, Jew, to the Jewish citizen in general, and you can especially what, imagine what it meant to the zealot. You know the zealots, those that had committed themselves to fighting against the Roman oppression, to killing Roman soldiers and officers whenever they could. You can imagine how they thought about this, and you can imagine that there were zealots where in Jesus' audience. In fact, we know that there was a, a zealot ultimately among Jesus' disciples, or I, I would have to say most likely a former zealot, one who had been one. So here we have Jesus going at the, maybe at the heart of the Jewish hatred of government oppression, and it was strong and deep. The Jews have had, and it, it, all from the Old Testament all the way forward, they have had a special history of hating oppression. And so this would have been unbelievably difficult to stomach. You are telling us to do what? We have to take the very oppressors, uh, the one who was oppressing us, we have to take his stuff, we have to carry it for him. And not only that, I mean, that would be hard enough. You're supposed to have a good attitude to do the one mile. Once again, okay, that's my legal limit. And you can imagine if they had pedometers in that day, that the Roman soldier comes, he gives him his, clicks the pedometer, and the second that it hits a mile, boom, down goes the stuff. Pick it up yourself. I'm out of here. And what does Jesus say? Not one mile, not the legally required limit Double it. Go to. I mean, I can almost imagine as Jesus gives this command that people at the back start to leave. You know the rustling that starts to happen when people are like, I've had enough. Thankfully, it doesn't happen too often here. Every once in a while, you can see the rustling and we've, we've had it. We're out the door. And maybe this sermon will be the one for you. But I would imagine that for some of Jesus' followers, this was it. Or those that just had come to listen to a good sermon. It's not a good sermon anymore. You're telling me that I have to continue to go along with this oppression. Unbelievable. Few statements of Jesus could have been more inflammatory than this one. The Jews hated the Romans. They were looking for the Messiah to do what? To deliver them from Roman oppression. And instead, the Messiah comes and says this. If the Roman oppressors ask you to go a mile, go to. Enough of that, Messiah. Enough of that teaching. Certainly, and, and, and again, the rustling in the back and the people walking off are saying what? This cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be. Otherwise, he would be saying what? Overthrow the Romans. They, they tell you to, to carry your pack. Throw the pack down. Resist them in every way. Passive resistance of every kind. So that you can throw off the yoke of this people. I'm your Messiah. It was just the opposite. I, mean, I don't even think we can wrap our minds around this. Perhaps if the Soviet Union or some other country that currently we are at least somewhat hostile towards or we're wrestling in our relationships with, maybe if they were to come and conquer us, set up a government here that oppressed us, and then put a law like this into place, which is if any person from government service that was ruling over us came to us and said, within a 20-mile radius, you have to, you've got to put me in your car and drive me there. No matter what it is, no matter where I want to go, you, got to, you have to take me there. No matter what you are doing, maybe then we could get it in our minds and you can imagine what that would be like. Of course, you can probably apply this to any law that you don't like. Consider a particularly an oppressive law, 
to say, how is it that I could, we can possibly live this out? So as always, before you jump to too many conclusions, and that has been done in many cases, let's understand what this does not mean. Okay, what does this not mean? Well, we're going to have to look at some other scriptures to determine how it is that a Christian responds to governments. And I'm not going to be able to work my way in detail really through any of these. You need to refer to our sermons back when we were going through Romans, Romans 13. We had seven or eight sermons on how to respond to the government. So I'll refer you back to that for a kind of more, much more background and more information on how these things work. But just as kind of a broad overview, what this does not mean is that it certainly does not mean that Christians can't refuse to obey government when it requires that they violate direct scriptural commands. So Jesus isn't saying that if a, a Roman soldier tells you to violate a, a scriptural command, rape that woman, kill that person, that you have to say, okay, I'll do that. Okay, the scriptures are clear that the government can never demand the believer to do something contrary to the direct commands of scripture, particularly when it relates to the proclamation of the gospel. Acts 5.27, when they brought them, they stood before the council. This, this is the disciples. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The teaching was positive in the teaching of the gospel. It was also negative in blaming the religious officials for the death of Jesus. A pretty strong um, proclamation against them. And you remember how they responded. Peter and the, and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Acts 4.18 And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. What a, what a great statement. They knew who God was. They were supposed to be respecters of God. And say, so we should listen to you more than we should listen to God. You decide the case. You figure out what we ought to do, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So I think it's clear that a Christian can refuse to obey the government when it requires them to violate direct scriptural commands. But most often, and, and almost entirely in scripture, that is used exclusively of when the government commands believers that they can't preach the gospel. We simply say no. Or, or it would, I'm sure it would broadens out to any tenant of God's word that is clear in the word of God. You can't preach that. You can't preach against homosexuality because we consider that a hate crime. I'm sorry. This is what the Bible says. We will continue to do so. You be the judge. Should we listen to you rather than listen to God? We will listen to God. That's clear from scripture. Next, this does not mean that a Christian can't ever speak out about governmental wrongs. We just always have to say, well, that oppressive law, we really like that. And because we're submissive people, we won't say anything about it. We'll say, that's wonderful. We're not required to do that at all. Christians can and should speak out against governmental wrongs, especially when the innocent need to be protected and the gospel needs to go forward. In Acts chapter 16, go ahead and turn there. Very fascinating uh, issue with the Apostle Paul and the law. And he always seems to be getting in trouble with the law, but I, I would like to remind you that the Apostle Paul got in trouble with the law for one reason. He was proclaiming the gospel. And if you get in trouble with the law for proclaiming the gospel, or maybe for running around the park squirting people with squirt guns so that we can proclaim the gospel later, as happened in our underground church, it's okay. We will we'll allow for that to be the case. The Apostle Paul has been put in prison in Philippi, beaten with rods, all right, because they, because he was, there was actually an economic charge brought against them that now that he had cast out the demon from the slave girl that was wandering around and it, and it causes an uproar because they, we've lost our source of income. He's stolen that from us. He's stolen our money. Anyway, so they throw him in jail and in Acts chapter 16, verse 35. Now, when the day came, 
the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release these men. We, uh, we don't want to spend any more money on them in our jail. We're done with this, with this rabble. Kick them out. But the apostle Paul said to them, oh, and uh, verse 36, the jailer reported these words. Remember, this is the jailer that had just come to Christ. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. They've just been beaten, stuck in the prison, all right, in the stocks. The only way they could even serve the Lord at all was to, was to sing, which they did. The one thing they could possibly do to serve God in the midst of that, they did. They raised up praise and worship to the Lord. And now he's saying, look, just, just go in peace. It's all right. Everything's okay. Don't make a ruckus on the way out of town. Just slink out of town and we're done with you. The magistrates just, you know, washing their hands of the whole situation. And Paul said to them, well, Jesus said, if we're supposed to go one mile, we'll go two. So we'll not only go out of this town, we'll go out of the next one. That's not what it says. Well, look what he says. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans. This was unheard of. It was unthinkable. It was a, it was a breach of the law at the deepest degree. And now they are sending us out, and they have thrown us into prison. All of this without a trial. All of this to Roman citizens who were supposed to be treated according to the law. And now they are sending us out secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Let them come and do it. Now, this is all very important, what Paul is saying. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. This was a big no-no did not treat Roman citizens like this, lest you come underneath the, the wrath of the Roman government. Because Roman citizenship was one of the ways to keep the people in check. Look, you be a good boy, and we'll give you Roman citizenship so you can un, un, release yourself from some of this oppression. But if that was just looked past, then it started to erode away at the power of the Roman government. Anyway, verse 39, they came and appealed to them. And when they, and when they that is, the magistrates had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Now, why would the Apostle Paul do this? He's just mad. <laughs> you can't treat me like this. What are you doing? You come and let me out. No, this is incredibly important for the progress of the gospel. The other towns look and they know what's going on. Others are looking at the precedents being set here. And so now, you know, if, if Paul can be beaten as a Roman citizen, thrown into prison, and then just walk out as though nothing happened or, or slink out of town, with the government officials having to say nothing about this, it lays down the grounds for further oppression. So the Apostle Paul is making it very clear, right? These guys made a mistake. This was not appropriate, what they were supposed to do. And they are the very ones now who are releasing us the demonstration of the fact that they had failed. And so it is really essentially protecting, seeking to protect the proclamation of the gospel in further places, as well as protecting other believers who are going to preach the gospel. So the Apostle Paul does not just simply say, hey, this is fine, this oppression is all right. He really appears to, he appeals to the political and legal system itself. We already looked at the fact that Jesus in John chapter 18, when he is slapped on the cheek, remember, he doesn't turn, he doesn't turn the other cheek, and he doesn't say, you know, slap me again, or, you know, let's, let's, let's meet together tomorrow when you can slap me some more. When they slap him on the cheek in John 18, uh, 18 verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus. Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. When all the Jews come together, I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? One of the officials standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And you remember what Jesus said. If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
this is inappropriate. You should not be treating me in this way. And again, I, that's, I think that's clearly for the sta standing for what is true, but also setting a precedent to say that simply to suffer government oppression when and if that comes against the gospel particularly is it's not something that Christians are commanded to do. And in fact, if they can do something which will help the proclamation of the gospel later, they certainly should do it. So Christians can speak out against governmental wrongs. This is not telling them that they cannot. Thirdly here, Christians, this, this, this rule of going the extra mile when there is government oppression doesn't mean that Christians can't legally contest government evil. The government was established by God, as we read in Romans chapter 13, to, the pray, to praise what is good and punish what is evil. Although many governments do not do this, there should still be legal appeals and biblical appeals to them to accomplish the very purpose for which they were created. It is entirely right and good to stand before government officials, to open up the Bible and say, the God of the universe is the one who puts you into positions of authority. You should recognize and acknowledge him, and you should acknowledge what you are supposed to do, which is do what is good. This is right and good and appropriate and ought to be done more often. Instead of, our, instead of our political officials always, always appealing to natural law and, and things that just seem to be right and, 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 and Republican conservatism, whatever it might be, they ought to be breaking open the Bible in their Senate chambers and saying, what God has said is that you as the government are responsible to him and you ought to be doing what's right. Now, they wouldn't be senators very long, probably, but maybe they would be a little longer than they thought. All these other appeals are sub-appeals. And they're never, ever going to be effective because then it's just one person's opinion against the other. Republicanism against Democratism, whatever it might be. It's never going to work. And it doesn't. It hasn't. This is the appeal. And it's right and good. And Christians ought to be doing it. It's wrong because God's word says it's wrong. It's wrong because all government officials are put in place by God and ought to be responsible to him. We can, should, must proclaim this. The government, and, and then probably in, in a more, then in a more specific sense, when the government is seeking to come and do those things which are uh, perhaps even illegal, in this case, Jesus is speaking of something that is legal. Right? But there are times, certainly, when governments come to do things that to harm the innocent, and there can and should be a response. I'm fascinated by, really, the whole book of Daniel, if you want to understand what it means to respond to government oppression as an exile in a strange land, which is what we are. Like, wait a minute, I was born here. No, you are a stranger in a strange land. The moment you came to Christ, Peter said you were an elect exile, First Peter chapter 1. You were instantly transported or your citizenship was instantly changed from a citizen of this country to a citizen of heaven. You are now in exile. But when you are in exile, you are to respond to the government of that country with grace, with submission in every place that is appropriate. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages 
presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.